Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Dismantling Injustice, where we demystify the immigration and criminal legal systems. And this month, we've been doing a series on surveillance. Um, and today, I'm so excited that we are joined by Envision Freedom's very own Nicole Triplett as we wrap up this series. Nicole is one of the smartest, most strategic attorneys that I know, and she's been ingrained in this work for years. So stay tuned. Welcome back. We are joined again by Nicole Triplett, the Senior Advocacy and Litigation Strategist at Envision Freedom Fund. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thanks, Carl. I'm glad to be here. So just to start off, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work that you do at Envision Freedom Fund and just the work that you've done um, over the course of your career? Oh, wow. Um, so first off, I'm, I'm glad to uh, be working with Envision Freedom Fund as a senior advocacy and litigation strategist. And what that means, I've been strategizing on, on their different campaigns and or our different campaigns on immigration and on the criminal legal front, undoing and dismantling um, structures of oppression, structures of surveillance, um, but also in the meantime, finding ways to meet the critical uh, needs of communities across New York. And so um, I feel like I feel like this is very consistent with what I've been wanting to do for a long time um, because it's hard to be in spaces and work with teams that can hold both, that long vision and um, the here and now. Mm -hmm. Just for our listeners, Nicole is being very, very modest. Nicole was one of the handful of leaders that helped lead the campaign um, that led to bail reform passing in New York in 2019. Nicole has a background as a civil rights attorney. Um, she's um, done policy work that's crossed the criminal legal system, um, crossed issues of surveillance, um, which we'll be talking about today. Um, she's done work around just the, the ways in which, um, you know, on, on like data justice type work. So Nicole has a lot of experience um, that she's bringing to the table. And I just thought I'd say that because we're all about giving people their flowers while they're, you know, still with us and still doing the work. Um, I'm going to bring you along with me on every panel discussion, because <laughs> as you can tell, I do not like talking about myself at yeah, all. I'm, I'm glad we do. Oh. Um, well, Nicole, this month we've heard from experts across the field um, about the nature of surveillance um, and the ways in which it really, really um, harms our communities and, and the way that it's done this historically, that um, you know a lot of flags were raised after the Supreme Court's most recent decision um, you know, uh, related to Roe. Um, and every few years, there's something, something big happens that um, puts the issue of surveillance in the media. But this has been going on for decades. Um, and so I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about this history of surveillance, um, but also the ways in which it's evolved to incorporate new technology. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm so glad you all did this series because I think it's very critical to connect the dots. Um, while, you know, I think many people are talking about the laws, but I think there's also just the danger of the, what the laws empower, and that is this dragnet surveillance and the need to um, just oppress, control, intimidate, and exploit uh, people who 
have long been under the the thumb of surveillance. And so uh, I think this is this is critical for us to to realize this is connected to a long history of surveillance of Black people, Latinos, Asian, Muslims, Indigenous, women, um, dissidents, uh, and how pervasive it's been throughout history. I mean, we've seen even with Black people, you know, throughout slavery and then afterwards with state-enacted Black codes that um, these laws uh, not only fueled our modern um, policing, but it also expanded this notion that government should surveil um, blacks or should uh, restrict their movement and how they assemble, work, and make money, and, and ultimately live. And so, when we think about um, what happened with Roe v. Wade, it's also about like the logic that it's empowering. This logic that um, that is not novel, unfortunately, but the logic that women need to be controlled, women need to be watched and monitored, and that their most private uh, decisions about their health and their bodies have to be subject to this control and this constant like force of intimidation. Um, but the, yeah, this is nothing new, and, and unfortunately, it continues to empower the beast that uh, we've seen uh, surveil so many people of color. Um, I mean, I I even think about like after you know after Civil War, we had these you know the black codes, convict leasing and sharecropping that that grossly tied black bodies to to the land, and it allowed you know police and 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 bounty hunters to surveil black bodies, but it, it almost gave like everybody this free reign to be able to say like, I can be, I can, I need to be monitoring you. So there was never this, even during a time when you didn't have like social media monitoring and all these like sophisticated camera systems and data collectors, you still had this logic and this premise and this normalization that black people should be watched. And so when you look at these laws, you have to be asking yourself, what is it motivating? What are the things that they're legitimizing? I could go on and on, but like, I think even um, as the technology has evolved to like tapping phones and monitoring mail, we saw that in 1950s with these programs like uh, Hoover's infamous COINTELPRO, which which ran um, from the mid 1950s to the early uh, 1970s that explicitly targeted black civil rights organizations and activists and leaders. Yeah, what you're, yeah, what you're saying um, reminds me of the conversation I had with Albert a few weeks ago about how it is really, you know, we talk a lot about technology and whatnot and the way that these devices um, are being used for surveillance, but it is beyond the, the physical devices. Surveillance in and of itself isn't just about technology. Surveillance, we've, you know, surveillance has been a, a historic practice that um, has been used all along um, in this country by law enforcement agencies. Um, you know, you started to talk about the slave codes and whatnot. Could you just talk more about like the ways in which um, it's not just about the technology? Yeah, it's 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 about this need to control, and I think that's the thread throughout all of our history of surveillance is that. There, it starts with the need to place markers on people so that you've marked them as being um, separate from society, separate from the freedoms and liber uh, liberties, separate to be able to move and make decisions and act within their own agency. But it's it's these markers. So like, for instance, in, with during slavery, um, not only were slaves subject to, to this surveillance, but uh, also free slaves, so free blacks. So you have free blacks also being always under the eye of suspicion. Uh, so they had these lantern laws. And so like 
to be able to determine who was um, who was a runaway slave and who wasn't, they made blacks have to have lanterns after dark. If you were walking around, you couldn't just be in without a lantern because they wanted to mark you. They need they. It starts with this notion that you are already suspicious. It, it really does empower people to feel like the the prosecutor, the police, and the custodian. Um, outside of the the normal court processes, and before he even gets to what we say is like a police officer or um, a prosecutor, and so I think what what we've seen is is just that there's this just shadow um, system that uh, deems you worthy of criminalization, worthy of demonization and condemnation before you even get to official process of arrest and how other people see like a, an official commission of a crime. Yeah. And that's how you end up with like, you know, like what happened to Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. It's like exactly. these exact same laws, you know, there's a thread where they have, they've evolved to become like our modern system of policing and incarceration. Um, but there's another thread where they've evolved into average people in, in neighborhoods in some states being empowered as sort of like quasi law enforcement officials. Like if they see something, if you see something, say something, or if you don't see something and you just see a person that, um, as you said, it's not like, it's not about like the, the person's status. It's about like their description. It's like, if you see this black person, um, then they don't belong here. And so you need to watch them. Um, and that's how we, that's, that's really how we end up with these types of laws that that are are really really pervasive. And then I want to go back into the 1950s. You you saw COINTELPRO program, and this was not just happening at the federal level, but you had states also having their own investigation system um, operation. So uh, I'm originally from Mississippi, raised in Memphis, and Mississippi had its its tax funded segregation agency called the Mississippi state sovereignty commission that um, believed that they needed to spy on black everyday people. Uh, so they had spy lists of, of black pastors, of black um, teachers, of anybody who seems like a community leader um, because they didn't want them to, what they said, threaten their state sovereignty. And what that looked like to them is like voting or caring people to vote or teaching people about integration and, and the civil rights movement and what was happening in, during that time or, or highlighting injustices or speaking up for people. And so um, I didn't know until years later that uh, I had close family members on this list that were living in different parts of Mississippi. But once the list was revealed, it just confirmed what many of my other family members had long suspected. And you hear my, I would hear my grandmother say, oh, of course, you know, we know that sometimes our phones are tapped or our mail is infiltrated. We didn't get all of our mail during this time because we did X, Y, Z. And X, Y, Z was only just living, truly just living in their full agency, just going to church or uh, going to vote or um, going to work and and just feeling like they have a human right to to fight against what was threatening their material conditions. Like, and so what it does is not just the damage in the moment of like having someone's private life and having their political activities uh, chilled, 
But then years, decades later, you have this chilling effect where you have people still afraid to be able to attend a protest. You have people still afraid to be able to stand up because there are horror stories of how when they did act, there was there was harm. There was terror. They were being they were being terrorized. So, yeah. So I, I think that you're, you're right. You're so right about how this is it goes beyond it goes beyond the police. It goes beyond law enforcement. But it, then the effect is that people end up having to censor their own harmless activities because they're they're under the threat or they're under the, the this fear, visceral fear of being harmed. So speaking of like these, you know, like these just what we would consider harmless activities and activities that have really become pervasive, you started talking about places where people um, have been surveilled. So that's everywhere from protests. Um, we definitely saw that um, from the 50s through, I mean, arguably through today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in their neighborhoods, um, especially as segregation started to be dismantled, we saw this like surveillance state start to come into play and people that looked different um, yeah. were being, and particularly people of color, were being surveilled in their communities. Um, but nowadays, like one could argue that the modern version of this is on social media. Social media has really become pervasive. It's become very much a a platform that's considered harmless by many. And yet we've seen surveillance really take root on social media in ways that, you know, that we can kind of expect, but also in ways that are unexpected. Um, Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, I I think, you know, and I push back, I think it's not unexpected. I think because we know that, you know, law enforcement uh, and, and different agencies will use whatever they have, phones, mail, like if they, and we have history to, to prove that, then it's 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 expected that with social media having volumes of, of data on you, so your location tracking, your your social media activity law enforcement wants to be able to, you know, tap into that so they can figure out who do you associate with, what have you commented on. And so what you're seeing now is like it's hard to find a law enforcement agency, a local police department that is not purchasing actually data from third-party data brokers uh, for this scraped uh, social media activity of people that they deem suspicious. And so, you know, we've heard of, of about Clearview AI, being one of the most notorious um, sellers of this data. So they would sell, their main customer was police departments uh, up until recently where they finally said that they're going to stop selling this data to police uh, departments. They were selling this data to ICE. So what they could do is be able to scrape thousands and thousands of profiles um, your data off these profiles and and then connect the dots in the ways that they chose to connect the dots to be able to uh, make a case against you. So, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, what I meant in terms of like what's unexpected, I think like, yes, we in the activist space sort of expect this. This is very much the natural evolution of surveillance that we've been seeing for decades. But I think like the everyday person, like my 70 year old aunt, it is sort of um surprising for them can you talk about the ways in which those types of people are impacted, just like the everyday person? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think what's problematic is that part of this is just us not knowing how how deep of an operation police officers are in, involved in. 
into social media monitoring. We have these laws that we try to limit police officers from like searching your trunk or searching yeah, your car. The whole Fourth Amendment thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> a, the theoretical Fourth Amendment thing. But it's it's and that seems to be socialized. People understand that, and you know, people know like, oh, to ask a police officer, do you have a warrant before the police officer knocks on the door, um, to some degree. Right now, it's not the case that police officers are just disclosing, and they've never done this on their own, but like disclosing like, hey, we're looking, you know, we suspected you, and we're actually now monitoring your post for like months, days, months, or years on end. And and then when we, and then we're also, before we even get a warrant, we're buying data from other data brokers to piece that together in our own way, and then probably at the risk of, no, for sure, definitely at the risk of taking things out of context. And... Um, suspecting you and monitoring you of of doing who knows what uh, after the the murder of George Floyd, you saw you know more protests and you were seeing you know data on like how many people were at protests, what the demographics were, and you're like, wait, how did these people get this data? So what we're finding is like police officers are tracking your your phones and and they're able to piece together like your 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 race, your gender, uh, your zip code. Uh, this personal information. So like, for instance, in Memphis, after a few years of of some really high profile protests, it was discovered that uh, the local police department had another spy list. They had a spy list back in the the, the 60s that they got in trouble with from, um, from a lawsuit with ACLU. And then they found out that, you know, they had been still violating that consent decree. uh, And they had black uh, food truck owners, they had journalists, they had um, activists, but they they had victims of police brutality on on the spy list, and and this was a lot of it was done through social media monitoring. What was revealed was that a few police officers actually created fake accounts, social media accounts, and joined the different Facebook groups or followed certain um, activists on Twitter, and became part of like the group and was trying to like be a you know an informant and found more information so they could carry information back to the department. And so it's 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 a lot that um, police officers are able to do on social media nowadays beyond just scraping the data, beyond you know collecting the data, but also like posing as um, a friend of yours on 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 these accounts and and being able to get information that way. I think um you know these conversations they're always so fascinating, a little disheartening as well. You know I can't help but like come toward the end of every podcast and see like this dystopian future. But I know just from knowing you that that's not like you're generally an optimistic person and that's not how you walk about day to day. Um so I was wondering. Like where do you know how does this impact the work that you do day to day? And then where do we go from here? Like how do you how do we carry the torch forward? Yeah, I think with this type of work, it's again it it just all the more proves the point that you can't uh, treat the symptoms of these things. Like we have to make sure that um, we're seeing the trajectory of this dating back to generations ago, but then also dating forward and, and, and seeing how the evolution of, of surveillance and control and oppression and exploitation can, can move. And so I think it makes me hopeful that we just need to be more strategic and more pressed to dismantle, undo, delegitimize the, these 
structures of control and and the logic that um, that keeps ever evolving that um, suggests or even spreads the the lies, the false narratives that certain people should be controlled. Mm-hmm. Well, Nicole, this has definitely been fascinating. You took us on a ride from just the historic ways on which Black communities in particular have been surveilled um, to through the 20th century and the ways in which that evolved um, to today to what we're facing with social media um, and things that just like the average person should look out for um, when when it comes to surveillance and their social media profiles. Because um, I, I do think that to an extent, some people think of social media, like their Facebook account or their Twitter account, the way that they think of their home, they don't expect someone that they're not friends with or that they don't know to to be watching them and to be monitoring them on social media um, and definitely not law enforcement, but it's happening. It's happening every day and it's happening in ways in, in new and creative ways as the years go by. And so um, thank you just for offering um, this insight. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to fight this. And uh, yeah, um, for our listeners, again, we were joined by Nicole Triplett, the Senior Advocacy and Litigation Strategist at Envision Freedom Fund. Um, To learn more about our work, you can visit us online at envisionfreedom.org. And uh, this wraps up our month-long series on surveillance. Uh, Stay tuned um, for next month when we have another um, exciting series of podcasts for you. Bye. Thanks again for joining us. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund, an organization that works to transform the immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical needs of individuals impacted by these systems daily. To learn more about our work and donate, visit us at envisionfreedom.org. That's envisionfreedom.org. Dismantling Injustice was created by Sally Israel. Our executive producer is Abigail Wolf. This podcast is produced and engineered by Yassi Solutions and hosted by Carl Hammett Lipscomb. That's me. Special thanks to the team at Envision Freedom for being amazing. Until we're all free, peace out.